And one New Testament commentary said that disciples are those who have entered into a new relationship with God as the king and are called to a radically new lifestyle as subjects of the king in conscious distinction from the norms of society. They are to be an alternative society. So you see that the Sermon on the Mount is not just for anyone. It's, it's an intentionally avant-garde community that's supposed to go against the grain of the world. And it's an alternative to the world. This is a new way to live that the world does not live. And, uh, of course, if you've been around here any time, you've heard me use the word empire. Um, because I think that that's a good analogy to what the Bible calls the world. Um, I think it's like the Galactic Empire. Because we live in a post-Star Wars era, I think everybody has this idea of um, this hostile takeover of a galaxy by illegitimate rulers. That's what the empire is, the Galactic Empire. And Ephesians 6.12 calls these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. So according to the New Testament, that's out there, that we really do live in something like a galactic empire. But it's the whole universe. And so this sermon is the king coming into the universe, into our planet, and he is giving a manifesto for a different way to live. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is a radical alternative to the empire. And back in Matthew 4.17, if you have a Bible, look up to Matthew 4.17. And that's where he tells his people, repent for the kingdom is at hand. I am coming to bring a kingdom. And you need to turn around. That's what repent means. You need to turn around and change your way of thinking and enter into my kingdom as distinct from the empire. So it's like the scene in the, in the, in the movie where Finn takes off his, star, his uh, stormtrooper helmet. And he's, he's no longer going to be part of that. He's repenting, and then he puts on, um, you know, the the Rebel Alliance suit with the orange kind of swan-like symbol. So this sermon is inaugurating a resistance movement against the world, against the empire. That's why I think Tolstoy was wrong. It's not just for anyone in the world. It's for a certain group of people that have consciously chosen to be disciples. And it begins with um, these completely upside-down values. If you've never really thought about the Beatitudes... Carefully, um, they, are, they are absolutely crazy. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher, hated them. He hated these Beatitudes. And he said that they were the transvaluation of values. Because he thought that the, the real values of the world that any sensible human being knew about, the Greeks, he loved the Greeks and Romans, he thought they knew about these, were self-love and self-will and self-affirmation. Sounds like America today. And Nietzsche saw that Christ's kingdom came to subvert all those things. And so the Beatitudes are a transvaluation of values. He's flipping what is valuable upside down. And then based on those values, he gives us these teachings and these commandments that come after the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are like the necessary prologue of the kingdom where they tell you this is, this is the basic values. And then he goes on to tell you the specific teachings. So I want to look at those two things. The values, which are the first verses, 3 through 12. And then the laws of the kingdom, which are 13 through 20. And then also the rest of the sermon. So it's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're not going to look at much of that. But you can go back and look at those yourself, the rest of the laws. But you begin with the Beatitudes, and then you, you end with the laws. So those two things. First of all, the Beatitudes. Um, it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. 
And the poor in spirit are not just people who are materially poor. These are people who are um, spiritually and morally bankrupt. They have, they have bottomed out. They, they have so much debt they had to go bankrupt. They know that uh, they, they have nothing to stand on uh, of their own goodness. There's a famous uh, speech where Dean Smith, the former coach of the UNC Tar Heels, supposedly, I didn't find confirmation of this in Google, because I think, for one thing, Google wouldn't even have this search. Um, I typed in, always, always, always give up. And that's, apparently that's what he did. He, he stood up, he came to the podium, he said that, and he sat down. And of course, he was, it's a parody of Winston Churchill who said, never, never, never give up. And uh, Dean Smith was a former alcoholic. And so he was saying, no, life is all about always, always, always giving up. But again, Google didn't even come up with that. It, didn't even, it couldn't compute that phrase because it's so un-American to say that. It sounds crazy to say that. But that is the way the kingdom begins, is blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's the gateway into the kingdom. If you're not ready to do that, forget about the rest of the sermon. Don't even keep reading. Because it starts right there. With uh, that is valuable. That is ultimately valuable. So what do we think is valuable? We think that it's, it's very valuable to be healthy and fit. And it is. It's, it's valuable to feel good. It's a high value. It's a good thing. It's, a, it's valuable to have money, to enjoy good things. That's valuable. Valuable to have friends and family. These are all very valuable things. But if you would ask Jesus, what is the most valuable thing that a human being could have? He would say, oh, when someone is poor in spirit, that is truly a precious thing. That is a beautiful thing. And that is more to be prized than any amount of wealth in the world, is poverty of spirit. Where you break down and you give up. And you say, I'm lost. I don't know how to run my life. It's just like the first statement in AA. Um, my life has become unmanageable, and I don't know how to run it, and I need God. And so it's, the kingdom is kind of the opposite of a high jump. You know, the, the high jump is, uh, world record is 8.3 feet. And, and this, the kingdom of God is not about clearing that bar. Uh, it's more like a limbo contest where the world record is 12 inches, 12 inches off the ground. Someone cleared that. And the kingdom of God is about going low and getting underneath this bar where you've got to go down and be very small to enter into the kingdom of God. Unless you become like a child, Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, and this, I'll tell you, this takes time. So some of you are in a place where you're kind of intrigued by the kingdom of God, but you're not in it yet. As Jesus said to that rich young ruler, you're very near the kingdom of God, but you're not quite there. And I can tell you from my experience of moving towards the kingdom, um, it came upon me slowly, this idea of being poor in spirit so it was like four or five different hits along the way and at first I just thought to myself wow so I guess I'm not I'm not better than most people that was the first realization I guess that I'm not morally superior to most people and then the next one was actually maybe I'm not even that great a person in general and then it was like I'm actually kind of a moral failure and then finally it came to I am truly not a good person and that's almost like a heresy in, in the American, American therapeutic culture for me to say up here, I am actually not a very good person. Might sound like to you that he's crazy to say that. And you might think to yourself, I am certainly not like that. I'm a good person. But the foundation of the kingdom of God is, is a sinner repenting. Jesus said if one sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. That's how valuable it is. 
to the kingdom of God, to the unseen realm. Um, when someone is repenting, uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so the next beatitude comes right from that. See, these beatitudes are not different types of people, like uh, people who are poor are great, and God bless them. And then people who mourn, they're also fantastic. And these meek people over here, they're amazing. Like, God bless them. And hungering people and so forth. It's not like that. These things are one person and they build one on another. So if you're poor in spirit, then what's going to happen in your life? You're going to mourn. You're going to be very sad about your sin. And not only about your sin, but about other people's as well. You're going to just feel the tragedy of the world. And that's one thing you just don't see in the news. You don't see it in politics. When terrible things happen, there's very little mourning. There's always attacking, defending, uh, solving. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. In the kingdom we mourn. And we know that in mourning we'll be comforted. And I don't know if you have ever um, really wept bitterly over your sin. Uh, but it's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. That was where I was uh, in, in a parking garage in Baptist Hospital recently. And I was with Margie, my wife. And she didn't know what was going on. She did not know why. I just couldn't stop weeping. And I, I think if somebody, if a psychiatrist had walked by, like a resident or something, they would have probably given me some medicine, like, you're out of your mind. But um, it, it's a good thing. It's actually a comforting thing when you weep like that over your, over your moral corruption and your spiritual impoverishment. It's a, it's a good thing. It says that they will be comforted. And one reason that you're comforted when you mourn is because um, mourning leads to meekness. And that you can't really be in a better place than being meek. A meek person um, is comforted because a meek person really cannot be offended And it's a really, really wonderful place to be when you can't be offended. When you're not touchy and prickly, like a porcupine. Um, It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That one day, the earth is going to be filled with only meek people. That's what he's saying. That when I come in my final reign, everyone's going to be meek. They're the type, not the aggressive people he would think would inherit the earth. Not the self-assertive strivers. They're not going to inherit. The meek, who are not trying to inherit the earth, will inherit the earth. And um, there was a, a book recently that came out called Unoffendable. Unoffendable. And the author says, if you're constantly being hurt, offended, angered, etc., you should honestly evaluate your inflamed ego. And I think weeping for sin deflates an inflamed ego. Um, it's kind of like a jammed finger that slowly heals. You stop, you stop being aware of it. That's a good sign when, it's, when it starts to go down. And you're not aware of that place anymore when the swelling goes down. And that's kind of like your ego going down when you mourn uh, and it begins to deflate. And your reputation you kind of forget about. And if you're slighted, you might not even notice. That's a very comforting thing to be in a place where um, you kind of forget about your reputation. If someone really thinks you're great, you're a little bit amazed by that. You're kind of shocked by that. It takes you off guard that they think you're so great. That's meekness. So we have spiritual bankruptcy, we have mourning, we have meekness. And again, they keep building. I'm not going to go through all of them that way, but um, I guess the question you have to ask yourself are just, are these things you value? It's really important to evaluate, I think, whether you value these things, whether you really believe in the kingdom, whether you really believe the kingdom is at hand. Is this new way of life truly here? 
Is Jesus actually reigning right now? Do these values make sense? Or are they crazy? And you just want to reject them. Because you really can't have Jesus without the values. This is who he says he is. This is what his people are like. And so are you meek? Are you, do you weep? Are you spiritually bankrupt? And then he goes on, I think, to, to give other things that come from them. And really these other things are more like the way you approach the world. The first three are more like yourself. And then how you relate to the world. So merciful. Um, why are people who are meek and mourning and bankrupt merciful? Because they feel other people's sadness. And they don't, they don't put themselves above them. And they've been comforted. So they naturally comfort. So you're a merciful person. And then pure in heart. I think that means that you don't try to manipulate people. You're not always spinning things. You're not always trying to get people to do what you want them to do. You're not putting forth an image. You're just, you're just who you are. You're pure in heart. You have integrity. Same inside and outside. And then peacemakers. I think that the people that could be peacemakers have got to have all these other characteristics. You're not going to be a good peacemaker unless you have all these things. Because a peacemaker has kind of emptied their ego. If they haven't emptied their ego, they're not going to be a very good peacemaker. They have to be this non-anxious presence in the midst of people fighting. And sometimes the peacemaker becomes the lightning rod. So they are like the one, the scapegoat, who gets attacked by these two people that are angry with each other, and then you become the one they're angry with. And if you're a peacemaker that's a good peacemaker, you have to be okay with that. You have to be meek. Um, All these things. And so Jesus has this plan where he's got these types of people that are all those beatitudes. They value those beatitudes. And he says, I want you to be out in the world as salt and light. And that kind of moves into the next part of the sermon. Still in the Beatitudes section, but um, this is how these strange people approach other people, is as salt and light. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about salt and light. So when when someone says uh, salt and light, they often think that that just means you're really involved in the community. You've got to be salt and light in the community. That's actually not what it means. That's what light means. So light, think about light. Uh, light, yeah, light penetrates everything. If these lights are working, then it's going to illuminate all over the place. There's a shadow right here. If there was a light right here, that would be illuminated too. So it's an absolute absurdity to think that you could have a light that is hidden. They're the opposite of each other. That's why Jesus says you don't light a lamp in verse 14 and then hide it under a bushel. That's, that's absurd. That's impossible. And so what he's saying is that I want my bankrupt, mourning, uh, meek people to be out there in the world like light. Everywhere. Every nook and cranny of society. But then he also says salt. And actually salt is not something that kind of penetrates. It is something that distinguishes. It's different. It's a strong contrast. So if something is salty, that means that it's creating, it's sticking out. Um, if you have food that is not very tasty, if someone comes up to your house and you make them something and they put all the salt on it, that means they didn't like your food. That means that your food was tasteless because salt sticks out. Uh, it's salty. And Jesus again says, uh, this is an absurdity to think of salt that has lost its taste. If, in verse 13, the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be resalted? That's what it literally says. So he's obviously, it's an absurdity. So in other words, the point is, I want my people in the world and yet not of the world. I want them highly involved in the world but not at all like the world. And usually Christians are either in the world and they become just like the world, 
That'd be kind of more like the liberal church. Or you're really not of the world. You're really dip- and you don't really get involved in the world. That's kind of the more conservative church. And I think what Jesus wants is both of these things. And when both of these things happen and you're really involved in people's lives, really involved in the city, and not just in a little cloister or a monastery, holy huddle or something like that, when you're really involved and very different, guess what happens? Verse 11. Uh, you'll be reviled. Uh, you'll be persecuted. And people will say all sorts of things about you that uh, are really mean and not true. False things said about you. Persecuted for righteousness sake. And it's kind of like, you know, when uh, Neo went back into the Matrix, if you've seen those movies, uh, to expose the fraud, when he challenged the system, which is another great analogy to the empire and the kingdom. Um, the Matrix did not like that. They did not like his presence as someone who was sa- saying, this is all an illusion. This is a lie. This is not the way to go. And the same way when Jesus comes and he says, um, not only can you not commit adultery, you can't even lust at a person. You can't, even, you can't even think of that person. You hold their image in your mind in a lusting way. You can't even do that. Um, that doesn't make the world very happy. The empire doesn't like it when someone comes and says things like that. So even if you try to live that way, if you strive for that, if that's a value of yours, that level of sexual purity, um, the empire's not going to like that. And you don't have to go out and tell people you're like that, but just even to be that way in the presence of the empire, um, an empire that normalizes pornography and objectifies women is not going to like people who are the type people that Jesus talks about. So if you're not really being persecuted in any way, and you might not know whether you are or not, but if you're not being, that's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. It's a good sign when people actually are saying things about you uh, that are not true and that are negative. Because someone in the kingdom, that's just going to happen. Um, that's, again, that's one of the values. Blessed are these people who are disliked and gossiped about in a way that is not true to them. So that's the, that's the first point, is the kingdom values. I love it in Acts 17.6, when it says that uh, they dragged Jason, who was a Christian, and some of his brothers and sisters in Christ, they dragged them all before the city authorities. And these were um, merchants in the city that did not like that these people were threatening their business. So imagine like shop owners at the Haynes Mall dragging all these Christians out to the city authorities and saying, these people have come to turn the world upside down. And now they've come to our city also. That's, that's from the book of Acts. These people have come and they have turned the world upside down. And that's what, that's what Jesus did. Transvaluation of values. He flipped everything on its head. So that's the first point. Kingdom values. And then from those kind of cutting-edge values come these crazy laws, one of which I've already mentioned, which is that you can't only not commit adultery, but you can't even have lust. And he actually takes a lot of the Ten Commandments, and he says, you thought that it was just like this, no adultery. I'm actually saying it was always a lot deeper than that, that not only that commandment, but also murder. You thought that it was just about not committing murder, but I'm telling you, it's actually not about being angry with someone. So he, he just takes those laws, and he just pounds them in, Deeper and deeper. So he says, don't worry, don't retaliate, don't hoard, don't hate anyone, and give recklessly. And that's just some of them. So that's the second point, the kingdom laws. 
the, the laws of the kingdom. And this is the rest of the sermon. And some people actually think Jesus didn't like laws. Have you ever heard that? That Jesus was um, kind of a, a loose guy who thought that the Ten Commandments were overrated. And uh, he, was, he was the type of guy that thought they were really constricting and that we should live like a free life. Um, but actually in verse 18, he um, affirms the entire Old Testament in every single point. A, a jot or a tittle or an iota or a dot is just a little, a part of a, of a letter, like the font that is like turned, you know. So it'd be that little part of an A on the top would be an iota or a dot. And what he's saying in verse 18 is until heaven and earth pass away, not a single point from the entire Scripture of the Old Testament is going to be done away with. And so he was actually affirming that the whole Old Testament is inerrant, has not a single error, not even close to an error. So he had a very, very high view of the Old Testament and of the law in particular. He thought very highly of the law. So it's not like Moses was stiff and he wore a formal business suit and had all these laws and then Jesus was really relaxed and he had like a Hawaiian shirt uh, maybe tie-dye. He's like, don't worry about all that. You know, no big deal. Do your own thing. He actually is much stricter than Moses. He is much, much more demanding than Moses. He says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the, even the least commandments will be called least in the kingdom. So he doesn't relax at all the commandments. He actually intensifies the commandments. He says uh, in verse 38, you have heard, and this is not one of the ones we read, but it's very famous, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. But I'm telling you, you've got to turn the other cheek. And a lot of people think that he was actually criticizing the Old Testament law there. This is very important. He was not. He had nothing bad to say about the Old Testament law. What he was saying is that an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, that was not about revenge. That was about clemency and, uh, and proportionality and um, mercy in the law. So what an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth meant this. Um, if someone knocks out your tooth, you can't gouge out their eye. That's too much punishment. If someone gouges out your eye, you can't kill them. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a limit on the amount of justice. Um, it's, it's, again, it's, it's leniency. Never more than an eye. You could do less than an eye, but never more. Uh, never more than a tooth for a tooth. And so that law is actually about mercy, not retaliation. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have even more mercy. When someone slaps you, um, you simply turn the other cheek. You, you don't retaliate. There's no retaliation. So it's greater mercy. And he says in verse 17, I, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In other words, I came to um, push this law so deeply into your hearts that you would actually want to do it and actually could begin to do it. And that's what Jeremiah says. I will come in the new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write the law on their heart. So not only these uh, external commandments, but now they're in your heart. They, they are things that get into your thoughts. So if the Old Testament law was like um, a pencil sketch of the Mona Lisa, the, the new uh, Jesus was coming to make the, the masterpiece come to life. The, oil, the full oil painting. He is coming to fulfill the law, to make what was just barely sketched out in the Old Testament come true of a human being. A human being that is morally and spiritually beautiful. That's what, he was, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. 
uh, these masterpieces of righteousness. Verse 20, your righteousness must exceed those of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because theirs was too superficial. Theirs was too much about just these individual rules. I want you to go deeper. Um, It's got to be more serious. You could almost say the Sermon on the Mount is like the law on steroids. It's not less than the law, it's stronger than the law. It's stronger than the Old Testament law. So for instance, verse 21, I didn't read this either, but um, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's even angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So you see what he's doing there? He's saying that when Moses talked about murder, he was actually talking about way more than murder. He was talking about the, the deepest thoughts of your heart. And that murder is the top of this iceberg, you know, the tip of the iceberg. And underneath that, for a person to murder, there have been thousands of thoughts of hatred. Thousands and thousands of thoughts of malice. And so what he's saying is you've got to check things down there underneath the surface. The harbored anger. And probably the insults you've thrown at them. All the things you said about them. To murder someone, you've got to have gone a long way in harboring this stuff. And so he wants, he wants his disciples, his kingdom people, to be checking even their angry thoughts. And so these are not like the suggestions of a spiritual guru. These are, these are the commands of a king who's coming to create a new people. A new kingdom of people who are very, very different. Uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm just quoting him now. When you give to the needy, do not sound a trumpet. I think that's hilarious. Imagine when the basket's coming around and someone just pulls out a trumpet and drops in like a $500 check. You know, when you're giving, do not sound a trumpet. Um, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. When you fast, do not look gloomy. Um, When you do not be anxious about your life, do not serve God and money. Do not even judge, so that you will not be judged. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I could go on and on. But I'm just telling you, that, that, is, that does not sound like an easygoing guy. That's not a relaxed guy. That, that, that's very serious and strict and uncompromising. And at one point in the sermon, he says, I want you to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And most of my days, I compare myself to other people. And I think to myself, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm at least average. You know, I'm, morally speaking, I can maybe tweak a few things here and there. But overall, I am, I am good to go. I'm about here. Um, and it's because I have this kind of warped ruler that I'm measuring myself against with very lenient units of measurement. It's kind of like grade inflation. You know, um, it's not that hard to, to look good today in America morally. So you place your life alongside society and you're looking pretty good. But when you read the Ten Commandments or when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, whoa, I am nowhere near that. And maybe your blood pressure is a little high right now just thinking about these things that he's saying. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. These are, these are difficult things. Um, you know, what he's saying is... Um, Not only do you not live this way, you can't live this way. You do not have it in you. You do not have the resources within you, morally or spiritually, to live the way that I'm telling you right now in this sermon. You're supposed to, you've got to try to, but you can't do it. It's not in you. Paul said, I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. He says, I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing I hate, that's what I keep on doing. And that's, that's the position of a disciple of Jesus Christ. This law is so impossible. And you realize you're so far from it. And you, you just keep trying and trying and trying. And eventually you get exhausted and you fall back to the very first beatitude. And it starts over again from there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So when you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, it's like go back to the top. Poor in spirit. Now try it again. And then go back to the top. And it's just again and again and again. And it really takes us to the heart of the gospel. Because one beatitude I didn't read about, which is my favorite one, is in verse 6 where he says, and this is, read this as a promise of the gospel. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they're going to be satisfied. And what he's saying there is that this righteousness is going to be totally unearned. All you have to do is want it. You have to want it. You, you need to be thirsty and hungry and know you're not able to keep it, but you keep wanting to keep it and trying to keep it. And he says if you're in that position to realize how starved you are for righteousness and how parched you are, then if you ask God, he will satisfy you and give you his righteousness. And that's not just making you a better person. That's part of it. I'm not just saying that he's going to make you a better person. I'm saying that he's going to declare you, you're righteous. I declare you right now in my presence to be righteous. And so if, I, if you come before the judgment, you will be declared righteous. You have nothing to fear of judgment. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. And guess what the satisfaction is. It's, it's the righteousness of Jesus. And he was really the only one who was actually poor in spirit. He's the only one who mourned perfectly. He was the only one who was meek. He was the only one that really hungered and thirsted for righteousness. I mean, who, what a human being has ever really been merciful, truly merciful other than him. And pure in heart. Who besides Jesus was pure in heart? And a peacemaker. And he reconciled humanity and God. He was persecuted for righteousness sake. He was persecuted for talking about himself. So really, in the end, all this is summarized in the gift of the righteousness of Jesus himself. And that's what is offered at this table. For people who are hungry and thirsty, not for people who can check off every box. Um, God forbid. Anyone in here checked off every box in the